Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. In contemporary SFF circles, it has become fashionable to dig up H.P. Lovecraft's corpse and put him on trial as the avatar of everything wrong with speculative fiction. Hi, Hey, Harley. Stop. While we won't defend Lovecraft's abhorrent social values, he was a huge racist and it was disgusting, we have to ask... What is the point of this? What do we gain by canceling a man who is now a dusty skeleton moldering in the dirt? Are we really reckoning with SFF's bigoted past, or are we just looking for a way to ignore our contemporary problems by pinning them all on a convenient scapegoat? With me to discuss this is returning guest Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez of Podside Picnic. Hi. I suppose I should let people know. I mean, I'm not sure that any of the listeners, the regular listeners, uh, don't know this already, but um, I am going to just say that um, I have a bone to pick about, uh, like, this idea of somehow, I think I'd, I'd phrased it that, uh, to a certain extent, the use of post-colonial in uh, SFF circles sounds suspiciously like past colonial like somehow that's all it's it's all in the past like it's over like it's not still an ongoing process right which is kind of not what post-colonial in in fenon's work meant yeah to the best yeah. of my understanding we keep on digging up old howard philip and and putting him on the on on the on the stand uh for another yet another cadaver synod uh right. like he's uh what is it pope formosus or whatever right that one pope who got dug up and put on trial there's some really fucking cool like metal paintings of it which I mean, okay like hp lovecraft uh, was really fucking racist and his work was really racist i'm not gonna deny, deny that i'm not gonna i'm not gonna defend the horror of red hook but like what 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 do we gain from this like what what is the point of this what is the point of Yet another viral Twitter thread about how, you know, H.P. Lovecraft was was real bad, y'all. Like, what does this serve? Strap in, <laughs> but fuckos. I'm going to tell you about how Howard Phillips Lovecraft was a big bigot. Honestly, I think that part of the the thing here is that it's an easy it's an easy ask, right? Right. Uh, everyone knows who Lovecraft is. Everyone knows that Lovecraft was definitely racist. It's not a secret. It's not debatable. Like he has published poetry that is uh yeah, that 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 whole poem. He he named his cat a racial slur. He's he was not taking any effort to hide it. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps he had some slight changes of heart later, but I don't think that you just, you know, turn a turn a leaf a brand new leaf at that point. It would have been interesting if he'd lived longer to see him going through the process of reckoning with his previous body of work. Like that would have been super interesting, but we didn't get that 
because he died. Yeah, he died of like stomach cancer or some shit. Um, yeah. Just so happens that his later life, as I understand it, was it's really sad because he he died almost like destitute, like eating uh like from cans of beans and shit like that. Uh, honestly, just real sort of uh, fucked up shit. Regardless, I do find that it's interesting that it's sort of touted that um, and this isn't to to defend him. I'm just saying that it's touted that he was more racist than the time period. And right. I look at that and I sort of... I know that people at parties would get mad because he'd go on these really fucked up rants. Like his wife was really embarrassed because she'd take him out and he would just start ranting about skull shapes or whatever. But the question is, was he legitimately more racist than anybody else of the time or was he just saying the quiet part loud? Right, right. And I I think that the uh, it should be mentioned uh, in case, again, uh, any listeners that don't know this, you know, he did marry once uh, a raging anti-Semite that he was he married a a Jewish woman who I think his term was he accepted her because she had quote assimilated enough end quote and right and just because you're marrying someone of such and such identity doesn't mean that you're not prejudiced against them I mean how many misogynist men still date women like most of them probably most of most misogynist men still end up dating or marrying the thing they hate (laughs) you know you, you you got you gotta you gotta definitely uh yeah you, you can't or you do the like we're you're one of the good ones you're one of, she's one of the good ones it's okay you do that weird asterisk thing you know you you mentioned that and speaking of colonialism so I I had that happen to me uh, not not the dating part uh the 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 fact that I would I, I was raised in Puerto Rico a colony of the U S uh, even though in 1953 the colonial status was swept under the rug uh, at the behest of the U.S. Right. They they asked the U.N. to not, let's not pursue that any further. So it, it's no longer uh, publicly called a colony. It's a commonwealth uh, now, I believe. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, Whatever it, the it fuck is, that means. It, it is it is neither common nor wealthy, so no. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck. Well, somebody's getting that wealth, but it ain't Puerto Ricans. <laughs> what is it Brock Turner is, that fucker? Is it Brock Turner? I forget. The, the, the Bitcoin dude. Ugh. Amongst many others. Uh, so anyway, the the I think Brock Turner is actually the dude that got the six months on a rape charge. Oh, right. Uh, but that might be another thing. The reason I, I, I went on that tangent is because um, when I was, you know, when I was going to school, I went to a school on a military base um, because my parents were teachers there and I could go for free. And generally speaking, I was uh, a student alongside, you know, like uh, enlisted uh, officers, kids, FBI kids and so on, you know, and uh, invariably there would be some, some of the, some of the more U.S. or Anglo kids that would be like, yeah, but you're, you know, I, I would comment that you know they were saying something nasty about some puerto rican kid uh and i'd say like but dude i'm puerto rican he's like no you're not really puerto rican Ooh, fun not to me and you're like jesus christ see after a while you just stop sort of fighting against it because it's like how do you even right really engage with that right like you know this this isn't an argument i'm gonna win i'm just gonna feel incredibly depressed afterward it, it's more trouble than it's worth i'm you're not gonna crack the shell you're not gonna 
teach them anything. Right. And that's that's in like, you know, I was going to school in the 80s. So, you know, H.P. Yeah. <laughs> Lovecraft was dead for quite a while since then. You know, my point being that uh, even for the time, H.P. Lovecraft was, as you commented, I think he was in line with the ideas of the time. Let's point out that, I mean, in, in the, I think, 40s under FDR, there, or was it the 30s, there was the massive eugenics campaign started that eventually sterilized a third of Puerto Rico's women. This went on to the 1970s. And if you talk to liberals today, liberals, the way they talk about Puerto Rican statehood is Puerto Rico exists for us. Puerto Rico exists as a resource to get us another couple of electoral votes so we can win elections. That is how liberals, mainland liberals talk about Puerto Rico. They talk about statehood purely in terms of, oh, we'll make Puerto Rico a state. Like, does Puerto Rico want that? Would that be good for Puerto Rico? Do you have a right to just completely absorb this island with its own culture and its own uh, its different language? Like They still very clearly, casually have the colonialist mindset. They still very clearly, casually see Puerto Rico as US property, yeah. whether they want it or not. And this is like nice little liberal people too. This isn't even conservatives, but this is still an incredibly fucking racist, white supremacist, colonialist mindset. And it's quite casually expressed by people who are supposed to be in like the nice liberal party. Right. Like Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans are not right. for themselves. They, they don't exist for their own purposes. They exist for our purposes. And, and right. uh, it's, it's really, it's really frustrating to hear that even from, from people who you'd think are sort of fellow political travelers because- People who talk about decolonizing their fucking bookshelves will say that. Yeah. With zero irony. Yeah. And when you point it out, they're just like, uh, well, uh, or it's just, it, it just refusal to confront it. I know they got, people got so angry at Trump. Sorry, that rustling in the background is my cat playing with a toy very loudly. But people got very angry at Trump for casually joking about, oh, we'll, tr we'll trade Puerto Rico for Greenland or whatever. And it's like, Harley, fucking s settle down, cat. Jesus Christ. <laughs> And, and yeah, it's rude, but at the same time, this is saying the quiet part out loud, like Puerto Rico is not free. It is U.S. property, whether it wants to be or not. And he's acknowledging it in a crass way, but this is the fucking reality. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but we'll trade it to green. We'll trade it for Greenland versus, oh, we'll make it a state. Like in essence, that's not different. Yeah. It, at the heart of it is still, this is our property to do with whatever we please. Well, I mean- That's what's at the fucking heart of it. Same fucking shit. Yeah. I mean- the the funny thing is that I was just reading, uh, I forget if, if it was a a post um, by Nettie Korfor or China Miaville about the um, the H.P. Lovecraft uh, bust that was used as the World Fantasy Award. Right. And let me let me see if this sounds sort of familiar. Um, when Lovecraft writes that horrible poem or the horror at Red Hook, he's talking about the uncouth and not, quote, polite, end quote, black people. <laughs> so, you know, after an entire summer of protests and an entire movement that has apparently stopped being reported too much on, right. I, I can't help but think that we have not really progressed that much. No. 
And honestly, I, I feel like to a certain extent to your comment regarding like, you know, the decolonization, decolonizing your bookshelf is there is in fact an art, an essay that says, you know, decolonization is not your metaphor. Right. And it's become this little sort of catchphrase that sounds nice, but you know, that's the extent of the decolonization that people, you know, that the, you know, the, the, the companies that deal with publishing want mm-hmm. amongst other things. I mean, it's all well and good. I, I, I'm not against it, but I feel like it's it's sort of there to jangle some shiny keys in front of people who think that we're on this upward swing. And more so than any other sort of genre, or perhaps I'm I'm being I'm having a selection bias or something like that because I'm in the SFF community. Right. I feel like the SFF community definitely has like this teleological fallacy that somehow things are better. Absolutely. In the meantime, they ha- I've had people that I'm on panels loudly, you know, cri- like cry out that, you know, well, don't criticize Star Trek because all I said was Star Trek has a colonialist framing. Yeah. Like the original pitch for Star Trek is completely colonialist. Uh, it is the, what is it? Um, wagon train to the stars. Mm. So, I mean, when you're, whenever you're evoking. It's manifest destiny. Yes. Yes. And as we've noticed just recently, th- what is it? The, uh, the eternal frontier unlimited frontier that's the 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 um the final frontier i know was was i mean that's in the intro yes but space the final frontier we are frontiersmen you know this idea of the frontier like that that's a colonial oh yeah yeah for colonialist idea (laughs) i'm sorry yeah but there is it's like this woke colonialism like a well like starship troopers really so oh where the the fascist army is like multiracial and gender neutral and stuff like that's cool but they're still like space nazis they're just like less racist space nazis kind of there was just just last year i think they're trying to revive it the endless frontier act in uh, in the u.s congress Ooh, i don't like that phrase yeah right i think that that's that doesn't even like i don't even know what to do with that that that's simply we want to extend colonialism to space right we want to colonize mars and that is the word they use is colonize it's, it's yeah. not ending. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really, uh, it, it is a problem that is ongoing and we have not even, you know, like uh, yeah. dealt with it. And, and something I'm going to point out, like the big, the big hope punk story, the goblin emperor, right? Let's look at this. <laughs> the idea is that it it's okay because the emperor is mixed race, but it doesn't question the idea of, wait, should we have an emperor? Like, is it okay to have an empire? It, can you really have, like, a woke empire? I'm going to say, no, you fucking can't. Mm-hmm. You cannot have, like, an enlightened empire. An empire is based on colonialism. It's based on domination. It's based on exploitation. Yes. And I, even if the guy in charge of it is multiracial. So, like, that's as far as the critique goes. Like, more, you know, more goblin emperors, more female concentration camp guards. Like, yeah. that's not that's not decolonizing anything <laughs> we we should just uh, start uh, sending pictures of the hyena of auschwitz as uh, <laughs> right. as a response to uh, more women guards there were gay nazis it's cool it's like diverse yeah i mean and i think that the the issue i have with this sort of very superficial approach to examining colonialism and the racism that sort of undergirds it is the fact that you know as with the goblin emperor right it, it sounds really nice but then you when you start talking about like what seems to be like 
like these milk toast policies, at least to the metropolis, right? Such as austerity measures or economic sanctions, people think that that's good versus dropping bombs. Right. Both of those things, like bombs are definitely much more obviously and apparently weapons of war. Right. But austerity and sanctions are equally devastating weapons of war. And I would say more insidious because people don't sort of cotton to the fact that that's that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. People scratch their heads like, well, why does Iran have such a high COVID rate, you know, of people dying and stuff like that? And he's like, right. well, dummies, we've been imposing sanctions ever since the Obama administration. It's been eight years. Right. Like when conservatives hold up, oh, Cuba's poor as an example is why communism can't work. Like, yeah, of course it's poor. And any nation that's under the kind of trade embargo that Cuba's under is going to be poor. There's no fucking way to have the world's biggest economic powerhouse declare war on you and like not be poor. <laughs> right, right. There's no fucking way. The fact that it still exists at all is pretty astounding. <laughs> Oh God, I had the a cursed thought. Goblin Emperor Two, Juan Guaido. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we have a lot of people talking about decolonization, but being awfully quiet about the, the coup in Bolivia, being awfully quiet about Wish.com, Tony Stark's whole like, we'll, we'll coup anyone we want, ha ha ha, fucking comment. Being really quiet about sanctions on Venezuela or, or making really mealy-mouthed statements about Palestine of like, well, we, we want an end to the violence. Like, which violence? What violence? Like, treating the violence of the colonized versus the violence of the colonizer as equivalent? Well, I mean, that's that's exactly the, the issue that we're seeing right now. Gaza versus, you know, like Palestine versus Israel. Right. You know, Palestine does not have its own, you know, it cannot control its own passports. It doesn't even have control over its its ocean, you know, the, the stretch of, of ocean that it, right. that it, uh, that it has, they, they have no power and somehow to equate, sure, Hamas rockets might've killed some people. Sure. But to equate that with the multi-billion dollar weapons of war that, and the entire machinery backed by the U S as somehow equivalent, it, it's really something. It really is something. Right. And, and then, you know, on top of that, you need to somehow have some sort of weird, you know, sort of literacy test about, you know, the last 3000 years of history is like, no, that, that happened within, like that happened within some people's lifetimes. It's not like it's that, that old. This is pretty simple. Right. The country is like less than 10 years older than my mother. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's not that old. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, it was it was entirely uh, a product of so to maybe get into a little bit of it is the fact that it was entirely entirely the product of colonial interests back in the 19th century, you know, sort of divvying right. up the Middle East and making an entire shit show out of these are places that have relationships. These are places that different nations occupy. And by just drawing a line arbitrarily across a forest or a river or, you know, whatever doesn't erase that those relationships that ha that have existed for a long time which sounds like I'm contradicting my previous point but it, it doesn't because Palestine existed on its own Israel was created by I believe Western interests to sort of give the the Jews a homeland and also but also uh, somewhat uh, goaded into it by extremist factions in the area so I mean it's it's 
it's not i i may be uh asking for a canceling for this but it's it's not it's not quite as difficult to understand right like it's sort of it is a tool of western interests it's not this thing that spontaneously grew up and and you know what if you're trying to like make up for the holocaust give him a chunk of germany <laughs> fucking give him a piece of italy give him a piece of the of of like the axis territory give i think the chapo guy said like just give him fucking austria austria doesn't need to exist <laughs> we could avoid they, you know what how could you fight back after that like oh why do you give us a uh, yeah okay fair enough <laughs> you'd you'd have to accept it because it's like you fucked up this is a fair and just punishment you you lost your land and instead of a bunch of like fucking idf thugs they'd just all be like djs or something and it'd be awesome it'd be really chill yeah yeah it would be lovely yeah i mean um so uh you know it's funny that you mentioned or, or rather you had we had talked about uh john carter of mars as an interesting uh, example right. of like this colonialist narrative uh i i have not read the book uh but i just recently uh, outside of like this is completely coincidental i saw the movie and was sort of i was fascinated but also taken quite aback at uh you know how much of the character of john carter is supposed to be like this and like his entire reason for going to mars and wanting to fight the supposed good fight is essentially it's that what is it the lost the lost cause myth right of the confederacy right and because he is he is a confederate soldier you know he's he's yeah he's a former confederate soldier that gets you know zooped off to to mars in a very nice uh 19 like late 19th century fashion uh is sort of like this weird mishmash of different cultures that somewhat ham-handedly seem to map onto the different uh types of cultures in the u.s you know right right you have the red martians aha uh -huh. <laughs> subtle yeah real subtle you know the tharks which i uh i didn't find the tharks which are like green green skinned and have four arms uh but also very strong and warriors and i was like these are not indigenous if i were to uh i'm sure i mean it's late 19th century so it might be like an ethnic stereotype that's outdated it might be like oh it's the irish or something weird like well i was just thinking along the lines it's slavs it's slavic culture you know how they are <laughs> <laughs> those with those wily slavs well i mean I, I was just thinking that because they're very strong and uh and can you know sort of uh this is just the stereotype of black people you know and, and they're tribal and blah 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 it's just it's it's amazing and you know it's a very strange type of narrative to be releasing in 2012 this is not like it was made you know 50 years ago right it's it's a very recent thing and oh good there's another goddamn siren going past my and the cat is loudly chewing on plastic. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Sorry, I live close to a hospital, so this is <laughs> Partly, though, I don't know why you have to bring in loud plastic and crinkle it. I don't know why you have to do that, cat. <laughs> you are a little jerk who needs attention all the time. Cats are supposed to be aloof, and you're not. No, no. Yeah, and I mean these these sort of colonialist attitudes and and uh, problematic racial coding. I mean it's everywhere. We got Lord of the Rings here. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I do I do want to point out that one of the things that is really interesting to me about Lord of the Rings, and this is sort of, it's sort of like a weird uh, flattening, right? Mm. Because as soon as the movies came out, the orcs looked very different. But by uh, Tolkien's own, in, I think in his own letters, let me see if I can find the quote here. Um, yeah, his orcs were much more yellow peril. Not great. Oh, they were described as, quote, squat, broad, flat-nosed, sallow-skinned, with wide mouths and slant eyes. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Yuck, yeah. But, but to be honest with you, like... It's weird because after the movies came out, that image became their black or their tribal. You know, they're they're like Maori or indigenous. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, they, the way they're portrayed in the movies, which again were pretty recent, is like dark skinned, lots of tattoos mm-hmm. and piercings. Like, and this is like a Peter Jackson special, right? Because. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen uh, his remake of King Kong? No. The the natives of Skull Island in King Kong are honestly like just straight up black skinned, and they're they're portrayed sort of like as a sort of degenerate race. It, it's it's really off putting once you think about it. You know, I, I enjoyed that movie for what it was, but it, you know, he did not uh, stop to sort of examine some of the. The problems with trying to adapt, you know, sort of like a pulpy adventure that sort of deals with a lot of the same sort of colonialist outlooks, uh, you know, back in 2007, I want to say. I, I might be wrong, but, you know, like almost 2010 or something, you know, it's, it's not not too long ago. So, I mean, as much as we want to say that this stuff's in the past, it's also it, it's very much in the present and in the very recent past. And even if. Harley, are you would you fucking stop it? Cat, please. <laughs> Sorry. Even if, like, you take away the signifiers, the syntax is still there. The structure is still there. The idea of empire and colonialism being good is still there. I think, like, instead of a golden age space hopper, which was very overtly sort of colonialist, I feel like we have almost more of a gilded age mm-hmm. space opera, where it's like the structure of the stories today that are that are really popular. It's really similar. It's still this very like hero with a thousand faces stuff. It's still very much kings and queens and and the structure is still there it's just like okay the hero is diverse but what does it mean for the hero to be diverse when the structure is still the same well and we know what that structure leads to yeah i mean that structure in every single instance has always been like some sort of racial supremacy it has always been very patriarchal it's just oh there's a woman in charge i know i know i bring that up constantly but but paul verhoeven starship troopers like that's what we're that's what we got now Just a smiling psychopath, like, uh, was it Carmen Ibarra or whatever her name is? Uh, right. <laughs> just flying her little spaceship and, you know, bombing, bombing from orbit, you know, nuking, nuking the bugs from orbit. Right. You know, you, you mentioned the Gilded Age and I've, I've been really sort of kicking around this idea that, you know, a lot of uh, space opera is, it takes its cues from, you know, stories about the Age of Sail and it adopts this very paternalistic uh, sort of viewpoint, right? That somehow I think the only sort of space opera-ish thing that I've read that doesn't necessarily sort of set off my spidey senses in that sense is something like The Left Hand of Darkness, where Mm -hmm. the uh, Le Guin is saying that the ecumen is not interested in domination. They're interested in, you know, sort of sharing information. Right. Uh, But even then, you know, I sort of look askance at it because everything else is not that. You know, every every other space opera is not that. Right. Uh, I mean, even 
you know, want not to not to harp on Star Trek, but like Star Trek is an age of sail narrative, more so in the new generation, mm. because the the important thing here isn't necessarily the the inhabitants of of the planets that they visit. The the more important who is more centered is the relationships between the ship's officers, uh, and I find it really interesting that in a sort of post scarcity example uh, of of you know some people call it an example of like fully automated gay space luxury communism which i don't think it is Mm-mm. the fact that uh who's centered in these stories is always the crew of the enterprise i understand the reasoning behind it you have a budget you can only spend so much you know you can't have an anthology show mm-hmm. you need to center on a steady crew of people that you know you're going to make a show about and generally speaking like especially in the next generation there is some grappling with that but the framing is there and i'm sorry they're they they're a supposedly post-scarcity organization that is structured like a military and you're not you're not going to tell me that there's not a little bit of gunboat diplomacy happening come on right I suppose we should probably move on to one of the things that sort of set this this idea off, like this conversation off, which was uh, Shiv Ramdas's essay. Really bad essay. I'm sorry. This is like college freshman shit. Yeah, it, it, it's not very good. Uh, supernatural or super unnatural, an examination of post-colonial horror. And I'll say right off the bat that part to be perhaps as careful and as fair as I can be, I, I just think that it just misinterprets certain aspects of of horror and it tries to sort of do this by at tying it to lovecraft somehow to sort of invalidate the idea that horror is this colonialist uh genre and uh which like i shiv ramdas talk to a latino challenge <laughs> for the love of jesus do you know how many fucking latinos love horror do you know do you know do you know <laughs> Well, Well, I mean, we we just recorded, like, you know, Kiroga with his horrible tick monster. Come on now. Just, dude, just for the love, for being woke, it shows the startling ignorance of other cultures. Yeah. Yeah, I very shocking to me. Like you are, if if you know anything about Latin America, how the fuck can you say that? Oh, horror is a, a beloved thing of the colonizer. And there was one statement in there which really was startling to me, which is only colonizers fear the unknown. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Do you think? Okay, to the to the colonized people, the colonizer was the unknown, and it was pretty fucking scary. Yeah, I mean, if if you read anything, the the history of the conquistadors' invasion of Mexico, the 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 Aztecs had prophecies of terrible things coming beforehand. There were the their their soothsayers found had these horrifying prophecies and strange manifestations. Of, it was like a bird with a mirror on its face, and in the mirror it showed darkness. And 
and they knew something horrifying was coming. And then it came like, you, you tell me that's not, that's not fear of the unknown. I would argue that to a certain extent, the statement that really sets me off is the idea that somehow horror is a disruption of the status quo. And, but that status quo goes in both directions, right? So like, for instance, as you're say, saying here, the status quo of the Aztecs was a, let's, you know, we'll, we'll not mince words. You know, it's, it is a very warlike and somewhat bloodthirsty culture that also was always in a, maybe I'm not going to say that. I'd say that they had their foundational myths regarding, you know, the different sons and whatnot. And the idea that you needed sacrifice, human sacrifice specifically to stave off the coming of the fifth son, which was the catastrophic one that they were afraid of, sort of speaks to me of like this idea of like a perpetual war, except that it's a perpetual spiritual war, mm. which isn't to, you know, sort of say that the Aztecs were awful. They had their own culture. It definitely wasn't wasn't our culture. And they, they definitely had a stratified society where, you know, certain people were perfectly fine to die at any moment. I would say that to, to our standards right now, it seems like a brutal culture, but our standards right now sort of sweep under the rug or hide from us the fact that you know, many people in you know, other parts of the world are, you know, just basically cast aside or sacrificed for, you know, line goes up. Right. You know, what, what difference is that, you know, what exactly is the difference between making the economy, the, the GDP line go up versus the fifth son, you know? Uh, and that sounds reductive and it surely is. Well, it, in one, some people who aren't me can buy another yacht. Right. And that's extremely important for some reason. Yes. It's extremely important that someone who isn't me can buy another house. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm probably going to murder the, the, the phrase here uh, or the quote, but I believe when he was interviewed uh, regarding Atlanta, uh, Donald Glover mentioned something along the lines of, you know, you, you need to understand that the things that make something about the tax structure, the things that let you in the suburbs have another car in your garage, put people like me in jail. Mm. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what, you know, that's a great summation of exactly the type of system we live in right now. I, I will also say that, you know, Shiv's essay is, does have a lot of assertions. It's very strange because it's not really, it doesn't really explore too much. It doesn't explore anything in depth. It just sort of declares this is post-colonial. This is post-colonial in such way, but doesn't really support any of its ideas. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, in any way, it's really, it's really like I said, college freshman before, but it is a very mediocre college freshman essay, and I wouldn't be harping on it if I didn't see it praised so much. Yeah, I mean, it's very strange to me to see a bunch of adult writers reading this empty, fluffy little mediocre nothing piece and, and praising it. There's nothing there. Yeah. One of the things that sort of really was interesting to me is the fact that he spends like a couple of paragraphs. Like if you're, you know, the, the thing that is really interesting to me is that he spends a couple of paragraphs sort of delineating what is out of scope of his essay. Mm -hmm. When, I mean, honestly, I would have spent a couple of sentences. And one of the things that he asserts is that there's not a lot of scholarship around the you know, oral traditions of, of storytelling and whatnot. Which is not true. I, I don't know outside of. There's a fair bit of scholarship it just takes effort to get it yeah i mean and this was not a high effort piece this was not a, a piece, this was not an essay that required visiting a library and using <laughs> jstor 
this was a couple of Google searches, maybe. I would also say that, you know, like, for instance, personally, I remember, and this may not be the exact same thing that he's talking about, that, you know, I remember like in the 90s, there was a bunch of books by Jan Harold Brunvard that he had that sort of collected all these sort of urban legends. And what are urban legends? You know, they are oral. That's an oral tradition. Right, right. That's oral tradition. It's modern oral tradition. You know, like the vanishing hitchhiker, the choking Doberman. There was a huge thing about like urban legends too in the 90s. A ton of horror movies were about urban legends. There was that crappy horror movie called Urban Legends. And also Candyman was all about the exploration of urban legends, particularly urban legends in low-income urban black neighborhoods. And I I mean, I will say this, that a lot of those uh, urban legends, I... My feeling is that a lot of them are a product of like this end of history, right? The the idea that the end of history has come and that somehow there's this growing unease that this is as good as it's going to get. So then you also get uh, interesting sort of series and, and, and TV shows that sort of question authority whilst also being part of that authority, like mm. the X-Files, for instance. Right. So, you know, it it is, I will say that probably we could probably draw a pretty straight line between that type of idea of like what X-Files and these urban legends are are trying to do to current conspiracy theorists and QAnon, you know? And I feel like that's worth examining, not just sort of discarding it and setting it by the wayside because, oh, that's inconvenient to to my, you know, to what I want to say. Because part of the, I feel like part of the problem also is that there is a process of colonization within the United States of, you know, uh, of sort of subjugating, you know, poor and marginalized communities for the, at the, you know, like people are like right here in South Baltimore, we have a, I forget if it's a a trash, one of those trash incinerator plants and the health uh, results of that trash incinerator plant. Like, okay, so I live out in the county. I may be little, you know, unbeknownst to me, I may be benefiting from that. But the, the South Baltimore people, which are probably mostly black and not quite as wealthy are, have all these health issues asthma, all sorts of lung problems. You know, this is something that's- Environmental racism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is also something that's happening in Puerto Rico, which I, I, I've been- The shelling of Vieques Island. Well, there's that, but also there there is a, a trash incineration project that they, you know, that there's been protests uh, about. And it's exactly that. Like, you know, the air is just filled with fucking ash uh, and people are just, you know, just getting all sorts of diseases. Yeah. But yeah, like Vieques is a colony of the, the main island of Puerto Rico in, in a certain sense. They don't have their own hospital. Like the other day there was a- They have uh, staggering cancer rates. Oh, yeah. The- partly because the USA uses it for target practice for experimental weaponry. And that shit is just floating in the water. So local people have just horrifically high cancer rates and they have to take a ferry to go get chemotherapy. Or yeah, or anything else. Yeah. I mean, they, they have, uh, the, the Navy left, I believe in 2011 or 2010. But that shit's still there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the sick joke of it is the fact that they were using depleted uranium rounds in Vieques as sort of like a, uh, a way to train for like Iraq and, and other places, right? The, uh, local at the time, the local uh, surgeon general of the Island, uh, said, oh, well, no, the, the cancer rates don't 
don't don't surpass the baseline and you're like come on dude come on man mm-hmm. like the their incredible cancer rates like he was trying to say that because of the isolated community and uh, genetics and so on genetics. and you're like come on man what oh, genes oh, puerto ricans have better anti-cancer genes their skull shapes just deflect cancer it bounces right off their their low forehead ridges whatever the fuck give me a break dude it's truly amazing their genes fuck you yeah because of their genes they're they're they can't what's unbelievable just uh, but but that does bring us another aspect of uh, colonialism and imperialism too, which is that that shit always comes home. Mm-hmm. The horror of colonialism comes back to the heart of the empire slowly, 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 but it comes back. Like a lot of the suppressive methods used abroad end up being used for crowd control, for protests, a whole lot of the techniques that the IDF uses to subjugate Palestinian civilians. A lot of those methods end up being used by American cops yeah. when dealing with crowd control, when dealing with BLM protests right. a couple of years later. Well, I mean, you see it over and over and over again, which is, uh, I guess, another side of colonialism, which oddly enough, I, th- I think the decolonize your bookshelf crowd doesn't seem to note that. Like they'll talk about cops as now now that it's fashionable, even though all of their biggest heroes are basically super cops, they'll do like, ah, cop bad, cop bad. It's like, okay, well, why cop bad? Why, why cop bad? Where did he learn to do these things? There's no acknowledgement of that. There's no understanding of that because overall there's a massive lack of intellectual curiosity. I think going back real quick to Shiv's essay because I do have a couple of more points on that. It just it's yeah I, I have trouble coming up with points on it because there's like nothing even to talk about. It's it's just it's... well I did I did want to say that his tying horror to Lovecraft to sort of discredit it as not being post colonial enough is an interesting like he's he's pulling off an interesting thing here which doesn't really hold up because like for instance one of the more interesting like fascinating things Lovecraft does is that he like Shivs is saying that that Lovecraft's idea of horror because he's going off of uh Lovecraft's essay on supernatural and horror I I forget the name of the essay right off the bat uh he's talking about like a status quo right and uh he says that he doesn't really grapple with the idea that Lovecraft's more fascinating uh, thesis throughout a lot of his work actually is that the idea of a status quo is an illusion. Mm. Like we do not have a status quo. What we have is a, a convenient illusion that we tell ourselves and then it's just pure chaos bubbling underneath. You know, like that's the entirety of his thesis regarding like Cthulhu and the mythos and whatnot is the idea that we think that we are at the top of the food chain or creation or what have you. But, you know, that's not true. These alien extra, like these uh, extra extraterrestrial ancient semi deities sort of produced us as sort of like a, an accident that we're just a joke and a bad joke at that. And I feel like that's, that is truly a, a demoralizing and terrifying concept right? that is not being engaged with in this essay. Right. A- another concept, uh, another aspect of Lovecraft's work that a lot of the critics don't really engage with is social class. Like these rich old families, they're never the good guys. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like old aristocrats in Lovecraft, they are always just demonic, inbred monster people. They're horrible. And uh, also alienation. Leslie Lee the third of Struggle Sesh had a really great essay in Blood Knife about Lovecraft Country. And he mentioned this. Nearly all of Lovecraft's protagonists feel isolated from society for a variety of reasons, not unlike the alienation Blacks and other marginalized people experience. Alienation is at the heart of the Black experience of America. Moreover, Lovecraft was anti-capitalist, and the vast cosmic conspiracy of, at the heart of Lovecraft's cosmology lends itself to Marxist readings. So there are these aspects of it that they're not missing, that they're missing, and they're they're not recognizing. And I think there are ways to kind of engage with that while acknowledging the really disgusting views in there. Like to just completely dismiss Lovecraft's work as like he had he was racist. There's nothing worthwhile in there. I think is really faulty, and I think it's notable that. Sylvia Moreno Garcia, who we we read her book Mexican Gothic. She in there has t- I think two characters named after H.P. Lovecraft, or at least one. Howard, the super gross old guy, named after H.P. Lovecraft, and he's this gross skull shaped caliper guy. But Garcia, or but Sylvia Moreno Garcia, is also the publisher of Insmith Free Press, and she co-edited two anthologies. One is called Historical Lovecraft, and another is called Future Lovecraft. So while she's obviously criticizing him, she did find something compelling in there and is finding, I think, a more thoughtful way to reckon with this. You know, when you say that, I also always come back to the idea that, you know, one of the things that I feel is what people are fighting against regarding Lovecraft, uh, apart from, you know, like, obviously he's got his definitely bad things, you know, like he's racist and all that stuff, but they're really trying to fight with the idea that he did not, a lot of his stories are just in the public domain. So people are invited. Right. People who he would he would sort of pale, you know, go pale with terror writing his stuff are able to publish and re sort of imagine things and, and sort of remix it in different ways. Yeah, there, there's one I'm reading it right now. It's a short one, a novella by Victor Laval called The Ballad of Black Tom, which takes Lovecraft's probably his worst work, the, the horror at Red Hook. And I mean, worse, not just in terms of racism, but also in terms of just writing. It's really like kind of an coherent story, I think, and recontextualizes it. And and he's turning it into the story of this black hustler who kind of gets involved with the weird, spooky, demonic, rich guy's plans just because it's like, look, the world's fucked. I don't, mm-hmm. Oh, this is going to destroy the world? Oh no, I would sure <laughs> hate to destroy this world that I live in. Gosh, that would be terrible. You mean all you super rich racist fucks get a taste of your own medicine? Okay. Oh no, we'll disrupt our current society? What? Oh, that'd be so bad. We'd sure hate to see that happen. I think I think one of the more damning things in in the essay is actually the the assertion that the colonized are are not able to detach themselves from their everyday existences and that in fact horror comes from like this horror of the status quo being disrupted comes from a place of privilege, which even a cursory glance of the source material that Shiv is referencing, uh, Lovecraft admits it. He says, uh, and and here's the quote, um, the appeal of the spectrically macabre is generally narrow because it demands from the reader a certain degree of imagination and a capacity for detachment from everyday life. Relatively few are free enough from the spell of the daily routine to respond to wrappings from the outside, which sounds like a sly dig at Poe. <laughs> 
and tales of ordinary feelings and events or of common uh, sentimental distortions uh, of such feelings or events will always take first place in the taste of the majority. Mm. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what... <laughs> Right there, that entire essay is sort of just taken apart. I'm sorry. And to the idea that, oh, only the privileged are afraid of a disruption of the status quo. Like, I'm sorry, but the the oppressed know that shit can get even worse. As bad as stuff is, the status quo, if it changes, it can get even worse. So I don't buy the idea that like, oh, they fear the disruption of the status quo. Like, okay, but people know that like a disruption of it can make things even worse than they are now. Go ahead and read about the history of Columbus coming to Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico and how the Taino's uh, status quo was disrupted by that. Uh, you know, come on now. Right. I think we, you and I have both. Or the Aztecs. Like, it was a brutal society. I won't deny that. But goddamn, the conquistadors were even worse. Oh, yeah. Well, and and, and before then, like, they just, a, a while back, I don't know about the scholarship and, and whether the scholarship of this book has been sort of uh, challenged or whatever. But uh, there was a book uh, several years back called 1491, I believe, posits that there were like hundreds of thousands of, you know, sort of First Nations people living in North and South America and that simply the landing of settlers from Europe, the the plagues that they brought with them just decimated like entire communities, you know, like just complete devastation. Uh, I believe that it's in that book that they, uh, I, I came to the realization that like that little cutesy um, uh, Disney movie, uh, Squanto, a warrior's tale or whatever. Right. Squanto is suffering from severe PTSD and loneliness because he had to bury his entire village. Right. And he needed, you know, like he looked for some sort of companionship. This wasn't a, like he, if he had had his druthers, he would have not been uh, going to any white people. You know, he would have found some of his own people, but they're all dead. Right. And like, sadly, I mean, because he was kidnapped and, and forced to live in Europe for a while, like that's probably a culture that he's familiar with in, in this fucked up way. It's a culture that's established that he's that he understands. Like he spoke English. So it's like, OK, this is a thing I'm kind of used to. All right, cool. Like, yeah, fuck. That's how bad shit was for the guy. I don't know, man. It's, it's sort of difficult to really grapple with all of it because, I mean... It's hard to under- get into the head of a person who's been through something that, that fucking bad. Like nothing in my experience has been on par with something that goddamn bad as what he went through. So I, I, I don't know how to get into that mindset because I haven't experienced anything like that. Not not to that scale, not even to a fraction of that scale. It's, it's, it's truly amazing. And again, like perhaps going back to like the idea of like this internal colonization process that's happening in the US like we've we've mentioned that you know it once it, it reaches a certain point outside of uh, the metropolis's borders it comes back um and and it sort of manifests itself in these really weird ways you know i know that you and i've talked a lot about poltergeist right the, the movie and didn't really i didn't really think of it until i came upon this idea that the majority of haunted house narratives where speaking of supernatural you know sort of a, something that disrupts the status quo all of these haunted house stories are sort of based on this need to grapple like the the people there are grappling with to a certain extent their inclusion amongst the landowning class and it's a very bourgeois sort of uh, fear right I, I will give uh, that status quo I- I- idea a little bit of uh, a little bit of 
a weight here and this type of thing. Because it's basically, you know, it's, oh, the end of Poltergeist, we find out that, you know, spoilers for a- For a movie that's 40 years old, at least. We find out that they've built an entire housing development on a graveyard. But okay, but whose graves? Like, are these white people's graves? Because are they, is that what the story is about? Because I mean, the entirety, like if we, if we're being honest with ourselves, like most of the US is an entire grave. Right. You know, it's this idea that somehow what you have gotten, your house, your property, you will have to grapple with what that means and what you, you know, how you got that is, is a really interesting way to look at haunted, like the, the, the idea of the haunted house narrative. Mm. I feel like at least in American, I, I don't know if that's entirely true about John Carpenter's The Fog was very overtly about that too. Like really expl- explicitly about like the, the people who founded this happy community did some real fucked up shit. <laughs> right. To make it happen. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, that's simply the, the, the anxiety of having to grapple with your past Yeah, coming back. Right. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit more about grappling with that past. Cause I feel like there is kind of an attempt right now to grapple with our, with our ugly past and, and not just as a nation, but also in a, in a genre and how genre fiction has this history of basically being propaganda for the empire. And there are some different means of grappling with it. One attempt I think is to just throw it out and say, I'm not going to read anything old, which to me, I think that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater because you learn a lot by reading old fiction that's problematic. It's like, I think you learn what the, what our history really was instead of this like whitewashed history. I, I would much rather read old problematic works that show the country for the way people actually thought as disgusting as it was. I would much prefer that to like Hamilton with, you know, multiracial rapping slave owners. Like what the, f- the fuck is that? And I'm going to point out when conservatives depict the 1950s, they don't talk about, they don't talk about Jim Crow. Yeah. They don't talk about lobotomization. Okay. Like this, what we're doing now with these 80s pastiches and as fun as 80s pastiches are, the kids in these 80s pastiches are never as homophobic as kids casually were in the 80s. You know, Mm -hmm. I I, I do think this whitewashing the past is kind of harmful in a way because it's a very conservative idea of like, well, why don't we just go back to that? When you, when you watch an 80s movie, you go, oh yeah, that's why we shouldn't go back to that. As much as fun as, as much as I love a lot of these movies, it's like, wow, the casual homophobia and racism. Or, or not great, and I'm glad that we're not that anymore. Think about how, like, how free the the kids and like something like Stranger Things are to just bike around and just you know go hang out and blah blah blah. And you're like, the Satanic Panic was in like full swing, <laughs> you know. There were a couple of missing kids cases that got like really really famous around the time, and of course this was an error. The reason these kids are all so like free range is because their parents are all divorced. Yeah. Well, I- that's another reason that's not quite like grappled with too. Like the kids at ET, their parents are divorced. They're being raised by a single mom. So that's why they have all this free time by themselves. It's because they don't have two parents. Right. And she's, she's like holding on, holding down some sort of job that's never specified. And, and, you know, she, she's a little frazzled and whatnot. Even in the movie, uh, I think it's. She's raising three kids by herself. That's a lot. There's also the, just the plain fact that if this were really sort of, instead of being a nostalgia piece, if it was a period piece, uh, Winona Ryder's character in, in, in Stranger Things would have been, you know, accused of being some sort of weird pedophile or having disposed of uh, will in a oh absolutely secret satanic basement or you know. yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Or, or simply, or just simply, you know, told that you know she deserves it for getting divorced and being an awful person. Well, this is what happens when there's not a father around. Your son gets kidnapped by a monster. Well, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, but that's <laughs> obviously. Honestly, that's still a thing that we hear now. Yeah. You know, that's not like anything new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I feel like uh, to your point, I think that there is a difference between you know for for all his flaws, you know, like uh, there's a there's a uh, a video essay by <laughs> now canceled Lindsay <laughs> Lindsay Ellis <laughs> <laughs> about like how Stephen King, you know, for all his flaws, uh, his book it is really like it's a fucked up book. I'm not going to deny it. Yeah, it doesn't make the fifties look good at all. There's no it it is just the fifties sound horrible. I feel like to a certain certain extent you know i feel like maybe he's got uh, an idea like i i i often think about you know like how i believe stephen king was like a republican until x amount you know like until he was x amount of years old and he probably has people in his own family that he knew that were just awful you know and, but he had to live with them because their family you know he lived in the community what rural Maine with reactionary politics? No. <laughs> At the very best, you'd get lots of libertarian politics, except for, you know, like places like Portland and whatnot. And even then, somewhat iffy. Did you manage to to speaking of Maine, did you manage to see that 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 thread that uh, Dwight Rhinoceros from Eat the Rich? I didn't manage to. So he has this entire thread. I'm gonna post a link to it. That is talking about Malaga Island in Maine, which is a used to be at the turn of the century, the, the 20th century, I should say, uh, a mixed race community that was systematically just eradicated, um, mainly because they were considered to be this is full swing eugenics. You know, they were considered to be you know just problematic people. They didn't have the right skin color, whatever, whatever, whatever. They went so far as to say that they they lived in in weird tunnels instead of houses mm. and uh, grew, had horns growing on their heads. And I can't help but read that entire story and think to myself, is this like the basis for Lovecraft's Shadow of, over Innsmouth? Because at the end of Shadow over Innsmouth, the U.S. military is called in and they fucking just like destroy the town. Hmm. Like they they shell the town and then they drop depth charges into the into the um, the reef off the coast and if I'm not mistaken they send whatever survivors who have the quote Innsmouth look to basically concentration camps. It's it's truly like I I think about that all the time now. I can't stop thinking about that story, like the real life story and Shadow of Innsmouth as sort of like a weird companion, perhaps that being an inspiration for it. Yeah. It's truly it's truly something that is astounding. And and just casual eugenics eugenics throughout the throughout the forties and fifties, you know, like uh, people don't know that there was like these fittest family competitions as well as Mister and Miss Four H, where sort of the idea that you could breed, like the idea that you could uh, produce beneficial strains of you know like livestock, was taken to its extreme conclusion, where you then apply that same logic to human beings. You go well, Mister. Mr. Mr. and Ms. 4H are the best genetic stock. And you're like, what the fuck? 
you know, it, it's just amazing. Um, so let's talk about changing it, alternate ways to change it. Because to me, just pretending it's not there, that that's not satisfying to me. I, that's not mm-hmm. satisfactory. Now, one thing you brought up in, in a previous discussion is while watching Star Trek, while watching a lot of these stories, so often there's a story about a strange alien creature that sneaks onto a human spaceship or a human research lab and fucks everything up. And that's always the invader. It's this external thing that comes into a normal quote-unquote human environment and ruins things and not an earth pest sneaks off the human spaceship and fucks up an alien ecosystem like imagine if data in the next generation his cat spot got onto an alien planet and just wrecked the local songbird population (laughs) right (laughs) i mean or or yeah like do do we like honestly i i lived on a on a navy ship this is not sterile conditions how do we think that we'll have like completely sterile uh sort of Right, you got roaches and rats and shit. Yeah. There's a reason you have a ship's, a ship's cat, and that's because you have rats all over the fucking place. Yeah, so, I mean, whatever, whatever. If, if, if spacefaring were to become normal, then also space pests on ships would become normal. And that's not even counting, like, for instance, you know, like, okay, so you're just going to beam aboard a planet? That's a little rude. Yeah. You didn't even go through their, like, a- after 2020, um, we should be rethinking this. You don't have a quarantine? Yeah, there's no quarantine thing. You should be like, you should be in a little booth for two weeks or something. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. Sanitize your hands, wear a mask. No, they're just right out there, barefaced. Yeah, I mean, uh, just beam aboard. Fuck it. We got the technology to do this. Yeah, the the idea of diseases and whatnot is is completely. I mean, it it, it does work to a certain extent. Uh, the disease aspect, at least, like uh, just you know regular flus and 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 whatnot, is usually not dispensed with because you know it's the quote future. It's the future. It doesn't exist. Okay, fine. But there's still there's we have bacteria in our bodies. And most of it's like mm-hmm. benign or even beneficial to us. That doesn't mean it would be benign or beneficial to an alien environment. Just the various bacteria colonies that help us digest food, like that might be a huge problem for an alien environment. You don't know. Fucking Picard might take a dump in an alien toilet and like just wreak havoc. <laughs> on their fucking water supply as his weird human fecal bacteria just like corrupt the entire water system. You don't know. Yeah. God, could you imagine like, uh, you know, Picard dropping a deuce just causes a, an interplanetary incident. Right. <laughs> curiously, curiously, Ray Bradbury, who was not leftist or liberal, really had this framing in the Martian Chronicles. Earth ruins Martian civilization by unknowingly passing on the chicken pox. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he was capable of saying, are we the bad guys in a way that I think a lot of contemporary, even very liberal, we love identity politics, we love diversity in our in our fiction writers aren't because I think there's this idea like, well, if I'm diverse, if I'm a diverse avatar of the empire, then it's okay. You know, like, yeah, I'm still a soldier for the United States, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm queer. I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna be point. So like, no, you can still enforce the empire's evil even if you're queer i think that was a big part of the point of isabel fall's story and that's part of why so many people got mad because it really made them question it makes you question your own role in imperialism in a way that feels very uncomfortable honestly and this is not probably not my lane to to 
talk about at length, but I, you know, when, when the trans ban to the military mm-hmm. was floated out as something that Trump wanted to do, you know, honestly, me having been in the military, I was very conflicted because honestly, no one should be in the military. Right. And, you know, I, I understood it at the last that it was, you know, that it, it's more of a rights thing than, than anything else. But honestly, like, yeah, no one should be in the military. Like, right. You know, the, the military will fuck you up, man. It, it's, it's just gonna like, <sighs> If you have any any anxiety or any self-worth issues, imagine going into an organization that tells you that you're a piece of shit because you were two minutes late. Yeah. You know, imagine that you are in an organization that tells you that, no, you cannot actually do your job because, you know, the thing is, you didn't fold your socks in the correct manner. Your your sock folding was two millimeters off the uh, the norm. So, yeah, th- this is the type of thing you're 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 signing up for you know not to mention the fact that i i i just like the other day like this old memory bubbled up and i i wonder if it's still happening where um on the ship uh, every aircraft carrier has like a a contingent of marines Mm -hmm. and uh, i remember listening in on more than one occasion to some marine that was talking about like yeah you know i was put on fasting punishment or whatever I, i forget the exact frame but he was getting his supplements every day so basically, they're taking vitamins but being starved. Wow. Yes. I, I don't know if that's still happening, and I, I honestly want to find out. I think I know a couple people who I might ask that question of who were recently in the military, in the Marines, I should say. But, uh, you know, that's the type of fucked up shit you were talking about. You know, no one should be in the military, especially the U.S. one. You need to eat food. Well, I mean, and, and think of it. That is the way to uh, sort of basically abuse uh, someone that you, you want to do something with holding of food like that's you train a dog that way <laughs> to a certain extent you know it, it's a technique of cults to to keep people malnourished or at least give them very little protein so that they're kind of more malleable mm, yeah yeah i mean once you're hungry because you're you know you're tired you kind of don't really have the strength to resist or question much you just sort of go along with whatever we had talked about this and you were like completely shocked uh, speaking of sort of like diseases and how uh, they're used for imperialism uh, purposes. The fact that I, when I was in university taking a history class, a Puerto Rican history class, the professor told us that like uh, not, he wasn't trying to be like, he was actually trying to be, uh, what do you call it? Conciliatory. He was saying that like initially the, when the U.S. came to the to the island and after the invasion, they thought uh, Puerto Ricans were just lazy and awful people that didn't want to work. And this is, I mean, this is supported by the the, uh, by the documentation of the time, but he said, but no, no, um, you know, the, the thing is that there is some some scholarship about how uh, they the what had happened wasn't that they were lazy, it was that they had a disease. <laughs> they got like some sort of hookworm that made them that gave them sort of like lassitude, and they just didn't have the energy. And you're like, wait, how is this? How's this better? They don't want to harvest sugarcane 16 hours a day under the hot sun for like 30 cents a day, like probably because of hookworm. I can see no other explanation. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it's one of these things where you're like, going to like, uh, how's this explanation better? No, they're just diseased. They can't help it. it it's their skulls aren't shaped right. That's why it's the same bullshit. Right. I mean, this is this is using using a scientific explanation to sort of you know paper over what is a, an actual problem, you know, like of colonization. That you know, like okay, so you want to extract wealth by just basically forcing Puerto Ricans into sweatshops. 
but somehow they don't want to do that. Well, obviously they have a disease. It makes me think too of stuff like feminine hysteria. I was like, wow, these women who have like no freedom or, or rights, like they're not happy for some reason. Probably uterus is fucked up. Well, it's the, yeah, it's, it's, it's also like the rest cure, right? From, from the yellow wallpaper. Right. Where you just psychologically break a woman until she's more compliant. It's like, ah, fix her by basically two months of solitary confinement in the dark. Like, yes. God damn. It's like, fuck man <laughs> or or an even more extreme example uh, uh, an antebellum psychologist coined a term he called his diagnosis drapetomania which that was his diagnosis for enslaved people who didn't want to be enslaved anymore and you notice you know people were trying to escape because being enslaved is a bad time he said ah it's because of this mental illness called trypetomania. And if you have trypetomania, it means you just want to escape things and you want to avoid hard work. It's like, no, it's just being enslaved is a really bad time, guys. It's not fun. It's, it's yeah. not It's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I don't even know what to do with that, man. <laughs> but yeah, fear of contagion and disease has been colonizer propaganda, despite like the truth being the opposite of the colonizer bringing illness and the colonizer disrupting patterns of cleanliness. Pattern like uh, before before colonization, Mexico City had a whole canal system that was really brilliant and also like a really great hygiene. Like everybody took a daily bath, and if you were an aristocrat, you had some kind of like access to running water or something some kind of like simple water system in your home and if you were poor there were public baths available to you so everyone could have a bath everyone could have a clean bath everyone could have like water for washing and and sanitation and also the canals were used for transportation it was this really brilliant way of taking advantage that this of the fact that the city is basically a swamp it's it's built on a fucking swamp and when the europeans came in they sort of paved it and tried to turn it into any normal city and now there's just massive problems with flooding more and more yeah well because they just tried to ignore the fact that hey the city's built on a swamp let's put the water somewhere it's like no we'll conquer water how's that going for you dumb shit well that's that's sort of like the um the idea that the the ancient mayans you know, like their their uh cities out in the jungles and whatnot were just like th th there was no rhyme or reason to how they just built anywhere you know it's just sort of like you know whatever and it wasn't until rather recently that they found out that they weren't going by like this sort of western idea of a grid system right they would have these uh streets that would you know take a specific path so that when you walked it at a certain time of evening or whatever the you know x star was like lighting like lighting the way or something to that effect oh, that's beautiful yeah it, it's great it's it's something that that um, that uh, that sort of really demonstrates there a connection to the natural world that is not necessarily a complete domination of it. But you know what, Raquel, this has all been an elaborate trap. I've got you now. We're talking about the Aztecs and the Mayans, but those were empires too. Oh no! <laughs> got you too. Cancelled. Cancelled. This entire episode's now cancelled. Um, <laughs> Cancel the Mayans. Cancel the conquistadors. Success fully canceled the Mayans. <laughs> well, they did. Deplatformed them very thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> Amongst many others. 
<laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, um, yeah, I do, I do think that, um, speaking of contagion and like, especially this resurgence of, of zombie narratives, mm. which I've only ever sort of almost intuitively, I don't like them very much. You know, it's, I feel like they've become this, they, they've really missed the idea of what George Romero was getting at, which is that human, you mm-hmm. know, we're the real monsters and, and human civilization is so fragile, but they've turned him into this reactionary fantasy for like the guy who has a bug out kit and collects guns in his Midwestern suburb where it's like, well, if, if society collapsed, I'd be fucking cool. Me and my dozens of guns, I'd get laid so much. I'd finally get laid. Yeah. I mean, it never examines the the whole idea that uh, amongst a suite of different sort of supposed dangers that the uh, you know capital O other has, it's the idea of contagion or disease. And, you know, sort of intuitively, I always viewed sort of zombie narratives as sort of like underclass, uh, the fear of an underclass uprising or, you know, uh, immigrants <laughs> or both because we can be intersectional. And what's so interesting is that it's so far away from the original concept of zombies, which was slavery. Basically, it's some kind of magical... Uh, some kind of witch doctor taking away your free will and turning you into this like zombie slave. One of the earlier zombie movies, like White Zombie, which I, it was, it's not a woke movie, obviously it was made in the 1930s, but that's what the zombie is there. It's in having your, your will and your mind stolen from you. And there's a scene where some kind of like evil witch guy has some kind of plantation staffed by zombies. And that ties in to colonialism so well. That's so much about the horrors of colonialism because what the fuck else were the colonizers trying to do the indigenous people, but turn them into fucking zombies. If America could turn all the Puerto Ricans into zombies and you know, they fucking would they'd love to do that shit and it's something that's kind of interesting is at the end of Shaun of the dead the happy ending is basically that they've got zombies working as like just menial shopping cart return guys yeah like menial labor type stuff yeah yeah and and like checkout counter girls like they they've got the zombies doing that and that's considered like a happy ending because they're integrated into society and it's like this was this idea was the source of horror with where we started and now we're seeing it as a comfort yeah did, did you ever see uh the serpent in the rainbow no um, I haven't rewatched in a while, but I, I found it that it, it sort of misses an opportunity because I, I always felt like, especially the resurgence of, of sort of zombie narratives in, in the area at the time, uh, always smacked to me at least of like poor insurgents being tortured so badly by like the Papa and baby doc regimes that they're just completely sort of catatonic, just like wandering the street. Mm. I think they try to sort of touch upon it, but it's not really uh, examined that closely uh, because, of course, it's a, it's a movie made by Amer- an American studio. <laughs> you don't want right. to, uh, you know, piss off anyone at, at the studio because you implicate the U.S. and what's going on in Haiti. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what to say, man. Uh, yeah. The, the 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 zombie one is yeah the original zombie uh the story is is really uh, there's a lot there i do think that it's really interesting that um the Shaun of the dead does that but it does it in a cutesy way that yeah i don't know if it works entirely as as sort of a critique because we're supposed to feel a little a little bit of warm-heartedness because he's got his best friend who's been zombified chained in the shed chained in the shed to game with him just playing video Christ. 
that's fucking bleak. <laughs> you're not really supposed to think about it too hard, which is fine. I mean, it's a comedy. You yeah. know, you're not supposed to think about it that hard. But I do find it like striking that that that's the essence of what it was always about. But now we're presenting that as like, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yay. Look, um, uh, Raquel, you know, like, uh, zombies are actually, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to, um, you know, sort of, uh, talk about, uh, it's a special type of neurodivergent type of, uh, person. You, you know, you can't just, you know, do that. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> All right. So we've been talking for a while. So why don't we bring it to a close? Final thoughts? Go read horror folks. It is, it is fun. Yeah. Horror is good. Even if it's not your thing, there's lots, there's a, there's a, a broad selection of different things that uh, fall under the umbrella of horror. You know, not everything is splatterpunk. Horror is good and subversive. And if you're worried about horror being colonialist, read some fucking horror translated from another country. Come on. We, we, we did, we did an entire episode on uh, Horacio Quiroga uh, <laughs> recently. Go read his stuff. All of that is horror, <laughs> more or less. Right. Oh, what's that book? It's like Gay Mexican Dracula. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. It's the 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 root of ice and salt, is it? Something like that. Uh, that Sylvia. Yeah, I, I think it's called that. Uh, I could be wrong. Let me let me see here. It's about like a sailor on the ship of death that carried Dracula over. Yeah, the Demeter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that sounds pretty good. It, it's like a. It was sort of a famous Mexican novel, but it just recently got an English translation, and you might want to check that out. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, Silvio Moreno Garcia actually ran a GoFundMe uh, to get that translated. Uh, it is, in fact, called "The Route of Ice and Salt." Mm. So it does sort of detail like the the entire sort of like the amazing <laughs> sequence of the Demeter leaving Transylvania, you know, whatever port was nearest Transylvania, and reaching London as like a ghost ship, uh, which could have been a novel in and of itself. But you know, oh yeah. But Bram Stoker only had so many pages, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other than that, yeah. Also, uh, Silvia Moreno Garcia has this really, it's a sci fi story rather than a horror story, but it, it really hits upon some of the stuff we've been talking about regarding um, sort of colonialism and, you know, ha the difference between actual resistance, hashtag resistance, and, <laughs> you know, just regular people. I believe it's called a short story called Them Ships, mm. which is sort of like a, a, modernized retelling of the story of the Malinche, Ooh. who is, uh, speaking of the Aztec, she is credited with being the the indigenous woman who helped uh, translate for Hernan Cortes. Right. And it's really, it's really interesting. I haven't, like every once in a while, that, that memory of reading that story bubbles up. It's also in podcast format uh, at Escape Pod, if I'm not mistaken. Cool. Okay. So let us wrap it up. Where can our listeners find your work? I podcast uh, rather regularly over at uh, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. I also have a forthcoming uh, article that will be showing up in Blood Knife, uh, which is a review of uh, the Goblin Emperor. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. From a sort of more of a, yeah, more of a leftist perspective. I mean, and my website is alineofink.com. So 
uh, I also have most of my writing linked up there uh, so you can access it. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And This was great. Yeah. And thank you, audience, for listening. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, sign up for our Patreon. Subscribers get early access, monthly bonus, book club episodes, and an invitation to the Kitty Sneezes Discord, where we have group writing sessions and talk about culture. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Edited by Sid Oosley. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>